Yes, Buck fans, this is the podcast that takes you back through all the best games, moments, and players in the history of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. This is the BuckPower.com podcast. Now, here's the unofficial team historian and your host from BuckPower.com. It's Paul Stewart. There are many great statistics surrounding the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but one that remains head and shoulders, or should that be way below all the others, is the 26-game winless streak that began the franchise's existence. Most NFL expansion teams struggle, but even going 0-14 in that first year was a surprise to many. To begin the second season 0-12, well that was going beyond the boundaries of reality. But the way the streak was broken, the story behind this game in New Orleans and what it led to on and off the field for the Buccaneers is a truly special experience. Welcome to the BuckPower.com podcast. Welcome to the Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans for this afternoon's NFC matchup. It's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the New Orleans Saints. And Huff is going to throw it again, floats it out, corner of the end zone, touchdown! Morris Owens pulls it down in a corner of the end zone. Got throwing, intercepted! That could be an easy six points! Touchdown! Mike Washington! Even Johnny Carson's going to have to find some new material this week. The recent struggles of the Jacksonville Jaguars has brought the Bucks' initial run of futility back into the public eye. The Jags got to 20 straight losses before their win in London over the Dolphins, so it seems that Tampa Bay's record will remain on top, or should it be bottom, of the NFL records for many more years to come. And I, for one, am actually pleased about that. It's part of history now, part of the lore surrounding the franchise, the real worst-to-first story of the early Buccaneers. Joining us this week to talk about the 1977 Bucks Saints game is a real historical expert on the Buccaneers. He is the author of McKay's Men, Dennis Crawford. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. Uh, you are truly a glutton for punishment, but you've proven that through 40 years of being a Buck fan. So we're going back now. The last time we spoke, we talked about the 79 Bucks who were winning. They were undefeated when we talked. We are now going back to when they didn't even know what a win was. That's true. This is uh, 0-26. This was not a pleasant year. Uh, 1976, they go 0-14. You know, they, they should have beaten the Seahawks in the, in the first exhibition, or uh, sorry, expansion bowl. They probably should have beaten the Dolphins in what people have forgotten was probably their best single game of the 1976 season. Uh, but in 77, they actually seemed to take a step backwards on offense. Steve Spurrier is gone. Uh, they have this three-headed monster of Gary Huff, Jeb Mount, and um, Hedberg, and none of them plays with any distinction. They score a total of three points in their six games at Tampa Stadium up until this point. So think about that. Buccaneer fans who paid money to go to Tampa Stadium have not seen the Buccaneer score a touchdown yet. Um, they've been shut out in back-to-back games leading up to this. Um, it is just a dreadful, dreadful offense. And it's very good that we're coming up on Halloween because I watched a couple of uh, films of games that you sent to me from the 77 season. And it's more terrifying to watch than anything that John Carpenter has directed. 
I, th I think, you know, people have sort of said, yes, the fans understood the 76 team because it was expansion. They knew it was new. By 77, they seemed to be getting frustrated and annoyed. And there was this whole campaign about throw McKay in the bay and go for O. They weren't quite so understanding then. Thankfully, they didn't have social media and Twitter then. No, but they did have some really creative publicity. I, I, I did a deep dive on that Go For O shirt because I, I volunteer at the Pro Football Hall of Fame and they used to have one of those Go For O shirts prominently displayed uh, in the rotunda. And what I found out was that those Go For O shirts were developed by marketers at Bush Gardens, the, the theme park in uh, Tampa. Uh, Rod Caborn, Tom Stork, Rick Hensler, they, they sold the shirts for $5 a piece, and they made them viral in their way in the 70s by mailing them out to media members. And so uh, Tom Brokaw actually wore the shirt on the Today Show. Um, Tom Brookshire and Pat Summerall, the lead broadcasters for CBS Sports, didn't wear it, but they held it up during uh, a nationally televised game. Johnny Carson was sent one. He wouldn't wear it, but he was holding it up on the Tonight Show. So in their own way, they went viral. I'm joined by a very special guest, a real legend in Tampa broadcasting. He covered the Bucks all through those early years. Dick Crippen, welcome to the Buck Power podcast. Well, I appreciate it, Paul. We go back, you and I, a long time ago. Boy, that was uh, back in the old Buccaneer place. And uh, yeah, it's been quite a trip from there. <laughs> so, so what were you doing back in 1977? Well, actually, I was sports director at the ABC television station locally here. And uh, it was kind of neat because I'd been following right from the time the franchise was granted uh, right on through. And it was interesting because a lot of people didn't realize we had held some exhibition games at the at old uh, stadium called Phillips Field, and they packed the stadium. And uh, the NFL took notice of that, and they immediately said, you know, uh, we ought to put a franchise in Tampa. And that's how that ended up. They got some guys together who were interested in it and put the franchise here. So I really was in on it before it got here and right through the time it was here. It was kind of funny because I actually, uh, the year before that, I owned a pro football team in St. Petersburg, Florida, across the water uh, called the St. Pete Blazers. And uh, we had like, I think, 12 All-American ballplayers on it and all. It was great. And we blew the league apart, so we didn't stay in existence. But I'd already talked to the sports authority, and that was before the Bucks, So they were going to put us in, the, in there, and it may well have been the first pro team. In 1976, the fans understood losing because it was an expansion year. Were they not so forgiving in 1977? You know, there were all these stories about throw McKay in the bay and the go for O. It seemed like the fans had turned a little bit on the team. Well, it was really uh, kind of amazing because, honestly, when the team came into formation, they could draft from the other teams, but obviously the other teams decided who they could draft. Therefore, they weren't going for their stars to be drafted. They were drafting whoever they were about to cut or uh, who didn't make the squad for one reason or another. And that's who we ended up with. And quite honestly, uh, it was a mishmash of players. There are a lot of young players 
who really were inexperienced in the NFL and some veterans who, you know, they were doing their best, but I mean, they were alone out there on the field because they didn't really have the coverages that they were used to. So it was really a mismatch. 77, things started to come together a little bit better. At least they were, shall we say, in the games. And uh, that was really what was happening. But the fans, of course, they had gone through 0-14 in the first season, so they were ready to take on some wins. And those wins were not coming, and they were getting very disgusted. And, yes, they had big banner. They were parading around the stadium, throw McKay in the bay, and they were yelling insults at him and all that. But uh, he stuck with the plan, and it eventually paid off. I mean, I've gone back and watched a lot of those games from 77, and the defense was really playing well. But there just seemed to be a total lack of talent on offense. They had one <laughs> touchdown in five games going into the New Orleans game. Well, I'll tell you, it was funny because Steve Spurrier is a good friend and uh, we were at dinner a while back and uh, we were talking about it. And I said, Steve, I said, you know, I understood your problems because I said, I don't think you ever even saw the stadium because you were looking up all the time and saw a sky. I mean, he was just getting pummeled. And uh, yeah, he agreed. And but he was thankful because had he not been uh, cut by the Bucks he would not have ended up as a coach. He went from the Bucks. he went to the assistant coach at Florida under Doug Dickey, and then eventually took over for Doug Dickey as head coach at Florida, and it went from there. But uh, it was tough. I mean, in Gary Huff, the same thing. He was being knocked down constantly. So it was, it was a trying time, but they kept going back out. The 1977 season had begun with losses in Philadelphia and against Minnesota, as rookie quarterback Randy Hedberg was only able to lead them to a field goal in each game. Gary Huff started in Dallas, where the only score came on Richard Wood's fumble return, followed by the first of six shutouts as Washington blanked the Bucks at Tampa Stadium. A 23-point explosion in the Kingdome was not enough to topple the Seahawks in Expansion Bowl 2. Huff, Hedberg and then Jeb Blount all took their turn starting, but the losses continued to pile up. Excluding those 23 points in Seattle, the Bucks had scored 30 points in 11 games, seven of which came from the defence. This was true offensive futility. The losses kept piling up and it was 26 after the Bucks lost to home in Chicago. No NFL team wanted to be the first one to lose to Tampa Bay, and Saints quarterback Archie Manning was quoted as saying it would be a disgrace to lose to the Buccaneers. Did you think the Bucs would go winless in 1977? <laughs> I mean, honestly, no. I mean, you had to figure somewhere along the line they were going to get somebody. But you know what happened by the time the second season rolled around? It was to the point that no team wanted to lose to the Bucs. And that was the whole thing. And I mean, you know, you go back to that New Orleans game and it was Archie Manning who was out there in the paper saying, you know, it would be an embarrassment if we lost to the Bucs. And of course that was posted all over the locker room in Tampa. And they, McKay reminded him right before the game when they went out in the Superdome, but nobody wanted to lose to the Bucs. And uh, that was that was the whole thing. So you figured somebody would be game enough to do it, but no, they went all the way to 26, and there it was. 
So this quarterback situation of, of Randy Hedberg, who'd come out of nowhere in, in, as a draft pick in, you know, in preseason, Jeb Blount and Gary Huff, this not, it's not exactly Tom Brady, is it? No. Uh, Gary Huff had one redeeming quality as far as I'm concerned, and that is he is a fellow graduate of the Florida State University. Uh, he he uh, played for the Bears, uh, the previous season. Uh, he was a journeyman. I mean, he wasn't a bad quarterback, but he was a journeyman. He was kind of a career backup. Um, I love Jeb Blount's story. I love that his nickname was Jeb based on his name, John Eugene Blount. Randy Hedberg could have been the best story out of all of them. I mean, this could have been like a Vince Papali invincible type story with Marky Mark eventually playing him in a, in a movie. He comes out of tiny Minot State in North Dakota. Um, he leads the Buccaneers to a victory in the final preseason game against Baltimore. And there's t-shirts again. Apparently that was, that was the way we messaged each other in 1977 was to go to like Foxy's and print a t-shirt. But uh, it said, why not my not? And so John McKay names him starting quarterback in the season opener against the Eagles, where, by the way, I think Vince Papali got his own NFL pass. Um, and he leads them to three whole points. And that was actually the high watermark for Hedberg uh, as the season progressed. I mean, Randy Hedberg's stats, his completion rate is less than 30%. He had no touchdowns and 10 interceptions. His quarterback rating was 8.0. It wasn't just the lowest quarterback rating in Buck history. It was the lowest quarterback rating in Faber College history. <laughs> Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. And the Bucks quarterbacks that year had one of the most amazing stats of all time. They combined for 30 interceptions on the season and three touchdowns. That's a 10 to 1 interception to touchdown ratio, or as you would probably refer to it as a typical Jameis Winston season. Or, or an inverse Brady. Or an inverse Brady. Yeah, it's like bizarro Superman. So what else was happening in the world on December 11th, 1977? Carter was in the White House and the British Prime Minister was Jim Callaghan. No, we don't remember him either. In Washington DC, angry farmers drove tractors and trucks into the capital where they formed two slow-moving lines 12 blocks long to protest about national farm policy. Star Wars returned to the top of the US film charts for the third time and its 17th week overall. It was holding off the second great space epic of the year, Close Encounters, which took over a week later and then held it over Christmas. But the very next day, Saturday Night Fever premiered in New York City. White suits and disco dancing would never be so popular. In music, top of the Billboard charts was You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone, and here in the UK, Mull of Kintyre by Wings was starting a seemingly never-ending stay at number one. The top TV shows were all on ABC, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days and Charlie's Angels. And in sport, the NFL had just played its 5,000th game the week before, and none of them had seen a victory by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Yet. Welcome to the Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans for this afternoon's NFC matchup. It's the Tampa Bay Buccaneers against the New Orleans Saints. Hi, everybody. I'm Frank Lieber, along with Emerson Boozer. And, of course, who knows, this may be the day for Tampa Bay. 
And so this was Frank Lieber and Emerson Boozer. Emerson Boozer was a solid pro with the Jets, but he might be one of the worst color analysts I've ever gone through. He makes, well, I take that back. Johnny Unitas is one of the worst. And Johnny Unitas did a lot of the, the Buccaneer games as well. And once again, because I'm a nerd, I also Googled how TV was covered um, or how football was covered on TV in 1977. And because this game was played in New Orleans in the central time zone, it actually kicked off at two o'clock in Tampa. The offensive line featured Dave Ravis, Jeff Winans, Steve Wilson, Dan Medlin and Darrell Carlton. Dana Nafziger was the tight end, Morris Owens and John McKay Jr. a wide receiver, with Jimmy Dubose and Ricky Bell lined up behind Gary Huff. No three receiver sets, of course, in 1977, but both Ed Williams and Lewis Carter saw plenty of time in the backfield. The defence was where the more well-known names in franchise history were located. Council Rudolph, Dave Pear and Leroy Selman played up front in the 3-4 formation. David Lewis, Dewey Selman, Richard Wood and Cecil Johnson were the linebackers. Jerris White and Mike Washington started a corner with Mark Cotney and Cedric Brown the safeties. 1977 was the emergence of the Buccaneer defence. They were playing the 3-4. They were keeping the Bucs in games and they were playing well, even though the team wasn't winning. Yes, and probably one of the biggest uh, stars of this defence is Dewey Selman. Uh, Dewey Selman came out from the shadow of his, well, I think Dewey was a little bit older, but his big brother in that physical size, Leroy, um, this is an amazing example of how siblings can be so different. You know, Leroy was so quiet and he would gently knock quarterbacks to the ground and then help them back up again. Dewey was loud. Dewey loved to talk. Uh, Dewey was violent on the field. And he made the transition from defensive lineman uh, to a linebacker. And so that was the big controversy. It just seemed like John McKay liked to experiment of putting people in positions they weren't accustomed to. We talked about how Charlie Hanna went defensive end to offensive tackle. Well, they took a down lineman who had been a down lineman for his entire career and said, now you're going to be responsible for covering running backs and tight ends out of the backfield. Good luck. And Dewey Selman became very successful at that. And in this game, you can see that uh, Chuck Muncie really has no way to get open. The tight ends for New Orleans were not really a factor in this game. And you can see number 61 running from sideline to sideline throughout the game. I remember um, Wayne Fonts once said the, the difference between the two Selman brothers was, like you said, Leroy would help the quarterback back up. Dewey would go and step on him. <laughs> and also you just see a lot of flashes. I mean, well, I'm sure we'll talk eventually about the fact that the defense alone outscored uh, New Orleans in this game, but uh, you're starting to see Mike Washington come into his own. Uh, you're starting to see um, the defensive line come into his own. Uh, you know, Leroy had a sack. Uh, Council Rudolph came in and had a sack. Dave Pear clogged up the middle of the line. Um, the linebackers are active uh, throughout the game. Richard Wood, Dewey Selman, David Lewis, they're all, they're all having excellent games in this particular game. And for those of you who are curious and wonder if uh, Eli Manning and 
Peyton Manning got all of their natural ability from their father. If you watch this game, you would think that they were adopted because Archie Manning shows absolutely nothing in this game. He is under pressure from beginning to end. The Saints opening drive lasted three plays and really set the tone for the game. Two unsuccessful rushes by Chuck Muncie and then Leroy Selman forced a fumble as Archie Manning tried to scramble out of the pocket. But Dave Green missed a 33-yard field goal wide right and Buck fans back in Tampa's side, expecting another futile attempt to put points on the board. But the Saints went nowhere again and with Manning dropping back to pass, the great pass rusher wearing 63 once again struck gold. Don Herman in motion off to the right. Archie Manning evading Selman's rush. But he got him the second time around, I'll tell you that. Council Rudolph with an assist from Leroy Selman. Selman really applied the pressure and then turned around and got him coming back. Leroy and I were good friends. We were good friends off the field as well as on. Uh, he and his wife, Clegra, were involved in a lot of things that I was helping him with. And uh, Leroy was by far one of my favorites. I mean, he, he, I love to call him the gentle giant, Paul, because he was a guy that was unbelievable on the football field. And yet when you went to talk to him in the locker room or on a, you know, in an atmosphere other than the stadium, he was so quiet. You had to kind of move in to hear him. And uh, he was just so gentle. I'll sum it up this way that one time uh, we're in New Orleans, the game is over. And I told my wife, I said, well, work your way down to the locker room. And when I get through interviewing in the locker room, I'll come out, I'll get you and we'll go over to the buses. So she had a dog of a time getting down there and, and she finally got down there. But by that time I had come out of the locker room, I didn't see her there. So I went to the buses thinking she may have teamed up with somebody and gone. Well, I'm standing there and she's not, all of a sudden here she comes with Leroy arm in arm. He had walked her all the way across the turf at a dark Superdome to get her to the bus because <laughs> he, knew, he knew who she was. And that's the kind of guy he was. Leroy came onto the team and, you know, there was that business about there was an agreement that if the Bucks took him in the first round, that uh, the Bucks would then take Dewey uh, coming up. And that was a promise supposedly made to Leroy. Well, they got Dewey. And here's what's amazing. You mentioned Dave Pear. And Dave was unbelievable as a nose tackle because he was undersized. And yet he was getting all these quarterback sacks. And a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, he's, it's just amazing. He has a nose for it. He can do this and that. And I always say to him, you know, if you think about him over in that three-point stance, he's got a helmet on. All he can see is below that helmet is a big hairy arm across from him. I said, he has a nose for it because Dewey's standing right behind him and Dewey's calling the shots on him. He was pulling the throttle. And I said, thanks to Dewey, he, he broke through the line and was able to get to the quarterback. So it was, it was a great thing. And that was a, the first time the team was really starting to come together. So Dewey was very important to that, as was obviously Leroy. But only the 1977 Buck offense could have a drive that went six yards on seven plays. But this time, Dave Green was more successful. Okay, Green who missed a moment ago from 33, will try this time from 40. McKay to put it down. 
It is good. A 40-yard field goal by Dave Green. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers lead the New Orleans Saints by a score of three to nothing with five minutes and 48 seconds left to play in the opening period. Late in the first quarter, with the Saints still looking for their first first down of the game, Manning tried to go deep and found a pair of Buccaneer defensive backs eager for their first snare of the day. Officials mark the ball at the five. Archie Manning throwing from out of the end zone. And he is going long. Intercepted, intercepted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Mike Washington and Washington giving it back to Cedric Brown. And Brown is inside Saints territory to the 34-yard line. Mike Washington made the pick and lateral to Cedric Brown, who returned it inside the Saints 40-yard line. This would be the fourth drive in a row that the Bucks had begun in inside New Orleans territory, but again, they could not move the ball with any real authority. A 10-play drive, every single one of them a running play, gained a total of 25 yards and led to Green kicking his second field goal of the day and the Bucks were ahead 6-0. So we've already talked about Ricky Bell in, in, in episode one because 79 was his coming out year. Now, he was a rookie in 77. The Bucs had some pretty decent running backs in, in that season. They just had nowhere to run. And nowhere to hide. Yeah, Jimmy Dubose, a Florida Gator, um, and I believe would eventually have the first 100-yard or 100-yard game uh, in Bucks history. They had Ed Williams, was a solid fullback. Um, he kind of was able to blast he couldn't blast open holes that didn't exist, but uh, he he was solid in his own right. Um, Lewis Carter um, was, a, I guess, what we would refer to nowadays as a scat back. Um, he was a receiving threat out of the backfield, which none of the others really were. So they, they had a nice running game, but what it was is they never had one dominant runner. I looked at the stats. Ricky Bell was the leading rusher for the team, and he only had just over 400 yards on the season. And what was fascinating about this New Orleans game was that this is the worst rushing defense in the NFL, and it still seemed like the Bucs were struggling to get four or five yards at a time. If Archie Manning thought the afternoon could not get any worse, he was wrong. He'd already fumbled, been sacked and picked off, but this was just the start. The defence, they'd been reading the bulletin board material and they were hungry for food. First and ten, New Orleans at their 26-yard line and Archie Manning wants to put it up. Big rush and down he goes, Leroy Selman. With ten quarterback sacks coming into this ballgame, racks up number 11 on a spectacular sack of Archie Manning. Second and 18. He's wondering where those white shirts are coming from. This time, Cecil Johnson, number 56 on the stop, and Archie is hot. Cecil Johnson was a new addition to the linebacking corps in 1977. Undrafted out of Pittsburgh, he'd made the team out of training camp and started all but one game as a rookie. His trivia claim to fame is that his brother was the drummer for KC in the Sunshine Band. Cecil would play nine seasons for the Bucks, starting almost 100 games in the process before having to give it up. The Bucks would finally start a drive inside their own territory and naturally became a touchdown scoring one. 
Gary Huff, he found Morris Owens for a 39-yard gain and then a quick pass to Lewis Carter should have resulted in a score, but the running back tripped over and was tackled at the five-yard line. All right, here come the Buccaneers. First and goal to go. Nose of the ball inside the five. Huff, by the way, is five out of six. He's had an excellent first half. And Huff is going to throw it again. Floats it out. Corner of the end zone. Touchdown! Morris Owens pulls it down in a corner of the end zone. And the Buccaneers have their first touchdown in three weeks. Yes, that is right. Their first touchdown in three weeks. Ricky Bell had scored in the first quarter of the Week 10 game in Detroit, so it had been over 200 minutes of actual football since Dave Green had even been called upon to kick an extra point. They'd been shut out in the previous two games before that as well, but Green connected and the Bucks led 13-0. There was still time for Leroy Selm to sack Manning once more before the half-time arrived and Brent Musburger and the CBS studio crew, they were as stunned as anyone with the news coming out of the Superdome. Do you think John McKay was too stubborn by not changing his USC offense? Well, I'd like to say that, except I got to be very honest with you. Uh, 26 wins or 27th game, he finally got a win. Then he won 128 with St. Louis. And uh, basically, a year and a half later, went to the playoffs. Uh, and I think really what was shown out of that was sticking with the plan. And his plan was to stay with it. And I think he knew, I mean, if you look at the old footage of Ricky Bell, who was another great player and good friend, Ricky earned every yard he gained. Yeah, Ricky uh, was out of practice and they were doing, a, uh, I guess, seven on seven. And that's just where they break through the line and they touch him and that's the tackle. But I noticed even though he was touched, he would always go to the goal line. He'd always score. And I finally said to coach one time, I said, coach, I said, I noticed Ricky Bell, every time he carries the ball, he always goes to the end zone, whether he's been tackled or not in, in when they were touching. He said, he did that in college at USC. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, he concentrated so hard that every time he got the ball, he was going to run to the end zone. And you know, if you think about it, Paul, if you watch the video of him, it's like karate where they say, if you're gonna break the board, you concentrate on the target below the board. Same thing with him. He doesn't see people coming up to tackle him and bounces off him. And it was amazing to watch. And he was, his career, unfortunately, he had that degenerative bone disease that was cut short, but what a wonderful guy he was and what a wonderful player he was. Did you find John McKay quite easy to deal with? Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. And I'll tell you a brief story on that. We had another station that was doing the coaches show. And what I was obviously as a reporter and covering the Bucks, I was watching that show. And the sports director of that station uh, said to McKay one time in the middle of an interview, he said, I don't understand why you're not using the tight ends because everybody seems to be using tight ends. Uh, have you thought about using the tight end? And McKay sat there with his orange blazer and his floppy hat and his sunglasses and twirling a cigar. And he said, you know what? Why don't you sportscast and I'll coach? And I said, okay, uh, I learned that one. So then from there on, when I interviewed the coach 
and wanted to know about like, why don't you use the tight ends? I'd go, you know, coach, they're all wondering why you're not using the tight ends. And I'd always say they, and all that. And so one day I'm at practice at the old Buccaneer place and there were two fields side by side and the far field, uh, what you never went to as a member of the press, uh, that was strictly on a practice field. So, uh, Rick Odioso was the PR guy and he came up to me and he said, coach wants to see you. I said, okay, well, I'll stay here. And when they come to the locker room, I'll, I'll, I'll be here. He said, no, no, he wants you over there to go to the other field. It's okay. It's okay. So I go around and I go to the other field and about the time I get there, he blows the whistle and stops the practice. And, uh, he gets the guys off the field and he signals for me to come over puts his arm around my shoulder. And one thing with McKay, if he really liked you, he had an IE to your name. So he's got his arm around my shoulder and he said, Dickie, I just want to tell you something. I said, okay, coach. He said, twirls a cigar again. I know who they are. So he, he knew he knew exactly where I was coming from, what I was doing, but he never, never bucked on it. So it was good. Mike from Largo got in touch with me through Twitter. He said he loved hearing from Roy Cummings and Nick Puglisi on recent shows as he'd grown up reading their work in the Tampa Tribune. You can find newspaper reports on every game in Buck history on the game screens on buckpower.com. Tyler from Bradenton said he was a little late to the party on listening to these podcasts but has caught up now and he'd love to hear more about the Super Bowl season games from 2002. I do have so many potential choices for the next few shows but both Jenny of Tampa and Dwayne from Clearwater they put in their request for the 1996 win in San Diego being featured. In time or tradition, watch this space. Bobby Scott, a veteran backup who'd started eight games in the 1976 season, he came out after the break to take control of the Saints' offence and had gained a grand total of 51 yards and just two first downs in the first half, both of which had come on the final drive. But any hopes that coach Hank Stram had the change would spark a Saints' revival were quickly extinguished on the second play from scrimmage. It'll be second and 14. Saints at their 42-yard line. Young Bucks defense digging in. They have done some kind of job so far this afternoon. Playing that 3-4 almost to perfection. Muncie and Galbraith, the setback. Scott throwing. Intercepted! That could be an easy six points! Touchdown! Mike Washington! Green converted his second PAT and the Bucks now led 20 to nothing. The sideline was really beginning to change from surprise to euphoria and you could see on the field the players were really beginning to believe they could win. But of course there was no change in the offensive game plan from coach John McKay. He was running the ball on almost every down from the start of the game and he'd given Gary Huff instructions to do the same even playing with a second half lead for one of the first times in franchise history. Richard Wood joined the interception parade after David Lewis had hit Scott's arm as the Saints quarterback tried to throw downfield and the Bucks' Batman stopped the scoring threat inside the Tampa 20-yard line. Wood was known as the Batman because that's how he once introduced himself. He began adorning his elbow pads with the Batman logo and in those days the NFL turned a blind eye to such blatant showmanship. 
he quickly became a fan favourite and he only missed three starts in the first six seasons of Tampa Bay football, having arrived in the 1976 trade with the New York Jets. One of the first trades in franchise history became one of the best. It's funny, when you look at the linebackers, Dennis, where they all came from, you've got Cecil Johnson was an undrafted free agent. Mm-hmm. Batman Wood was picked up in as a trade in the expansion yeah. season. Um, you've got um, David Lewis was a top draft pick. Dewey Selman, as you said, was a converted defensive lineman. Yet they all came together to produce really what was the best linebacking core in the NFL. Yeah. And I think once again that um, in all of the jokes we make about McKay um, and Abe Gibran not being able to keep his shorts up during uh, practices, um, and Wayne Fonts had kind of a very tumultuous time in Detroit as a head coach, the, we lose track of the fact that those three men knew defense and they knew talent and they did know how to coach. And so you have all of these disparate parts coming together as a unit. Um, and I'm, I'm not taking anything away from their talent, but I think talent without coaching is meaningless. There was a good system. This 3-4 defense worked really well. And also Dave Pear, Leroy Selman, Council Rudolph, they did such a good job of tying up and occupying blockers that those four men could just race around the field um, at their will. And in this particular game, it almost looked like it was at their leisure. I think what a lot of Buccaneer fans don't remember is who the first Bucks pro bowler was, and it wasn't Leroy Selman. No, it was actually Dave Pear, the nose tackle. Um, and in watching this game, I don't have a lot of video of the 77 and 78 Bucks, other than what you've shared with me, but I always made a point to really watch Dave Pear, and he deserved that Pro Bowl. Uh, he tied up a lot in the middle. He very rarely would make a tackle, but you could see him taking up two or three blockers at a time. And that just, once again, is kind of a testament then also to the late Dave Logan that McKay felt comfortable trading Dave Pear away because he knew David Logan was going to be just as good as, if not better. But yeah, people should remember Dave Pear. He's more than just a trivia question. He was... Re- he could have been an amazing cog in that defense for years to come. I think for current Bucks, if you can imagine how good Vita Vea is in the middle of mm-hmm. the current Buck defense, Dave Pear performed that role, albeit he was half the size of Vita Vea. But then again, most of humanity is half the size of Vita Vea. <laughs> and this is also a time where somebody weighing in excess of 300 pounds was a rarity. They didn't have refrigerators on you know, these human refrigerators that the offensive linemen have become. Huff failed on a fourth and one quarterback sneak, just proving that perhaps analytics did have a place in the NFL in 1976, but the Saints were still unable to do anything worthwhile as Leroy Selman collected his third sack of the afternoon, his 13th of the season. Then, on second down from close to the Saints' goal line, it was time for the man from Gotham City once more to do his thing. And Scott really took a lot of punishment on that play. Loss was back to the three-yard line, a loss of six. Here's Scott throwing from out of the end zone. Fires it over the middle. Here's another touchdown. Richard Wood, six points. He's going to spike it. Watch him. <laughs> That's Richard Wood's second touchdown. He had one against Dallas early in the year. Now he's picked up another to put the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ahead. 
This time, Dave Green missed the extra point, perhaps from exhaustion through overuse, but the Bucks were now 26-0 up early in the fourth quarter. If Matt Faskirchin had been there, could it be, could it be, the great curse is going to be lifted. Archie Manning came back in, got drilled by Leroy Selm on a scramble and immediately had to take a few more plays on the sideline to gather his thoughts. Manning, Scott, Bobby Hebert, Drew Brees, Jameis Winston, it would not have mattered who the Saints were playing behind centre on this day. This was the Buccaneer defence leading their team to victory. Archie Manning did get his team into the end zone on a two-yard run, but there's still time for a typically bizarre Buccaneer drive to take five minutes off the clock. Facing 4th and 13 from the Saints 40, Coach McKay called for a fake punt, and Green, who doubled up as the punter, threw a 14-yard completion to Danny Reese that pretty much three Buccaneer players all tried to catch for themselves. Four and a half minutes left to play in the game, and Tampa Bay will have its first victory ever. Even Johnny Carson's going to have to find some new material this week. <laughs> Fullback Ed Williams was then ploughing towards the end zone when he fumbled and the Saints took over near their own goal line. Not to matter, the defence was not finished yet. Blocked. It was intercepted for a touchdown. Blocked and intercepted by number 72, Greg Johnson. Manning did lead his team downfield for a consolation score with 13 seconds left and the Saints even recovered the onside kick as the Bucks were way too busy getting ready to celebrate the victory. But there was still time for one last piece of ignominy as Manning's final pass was picked off by Jerris White and the party could begin. So yeah, the secondary was really coming of age, um, but they were, you know, it was all levels of the defence that were, were getting the interceptions. The Bucks had never had an interception return for a touchdown in their first 26 games. Then they got three in the space of the second half. Yeah, it's almost like they were just playing among themselves and figured you get an interception, you get an interception, you get an interception. Because like you said, all three levels, and it was amazing, it kind of went in sequential order. You had the secondary got it with Mike Washington. Then the linebackers got one with Richard Batman Wood. And then the defensive line got into the act when Greg Johnson, who I think played for 16 years and made multiple Pro Bowl. Oh, wait, no, he played six games. Um and is one of the more obscure Buccaneer legends because he got the final touchdown in all of these on a deflected pass uh, near the goal line. So, so that's that's 18 points out of the 33 that the Bucks score. And in watching the first half of the game, I was still amazed at how much they dominated the game and yet only had six points up until right before halftime. So that's kind of every game that season. The Bucks' defense dominated. The Bucks' offense would get great field position and then have to punt the ball back to the opponent or maybe be lucky enough to get a Dave Green field goal attempt. Yeah, we're talking 33 points, 18 by the defense. Nine came from Dave Green on special teams. The Buccaneer offense contributed one touchdown. The Buck defense would record six interceptions, three each for Manning and Scott, while the Buccaneer offensive stats revealed 48 rushes and just 10 passes. Gary Huff was seven of nine and assimilated, sorry, accumulated 96 yards with one score. What do you remember about the whole atmosphere around Tampa after it happened? Numbness. <laughs> 
trying to describe a win. I, I, I described 26 straight losses. Now all of a sudden I have to describe a win. Uh, actually, I, it, was a, it was a very special moment in the Superdome in New Orleans. NFL Films produced one of their great historical features on the 0-26 run and several of the players including Mark Cotney, Gary Huff, Leroy Selman, Richard Wood and David Lewis told their stories of the game. What about the Archie Manning statement that it would be a disgrace to lose to the Buccaneers? Did that Was that a factor? That was mentioned before the game and uh, you know I, I think he probably made a mistake saying that. I know it fired up some, some of our defensive players. We beat the New Orleans, New Orleans Saints but I think that we'd have beat a lot of teams in the NFL today. We played that good. It's been a long time coming. The feeling, you know, haven't had it for a long time and uh, it's not just new. It's all over again. Just starting all over for me. The charter back was rather festive. There was a few, should I say, inebriated people on that play. <laughs> I think we were drunk. <laughs> I think we had a few beers. <laughs> I remember the pilot said, uh, uh, guys, you may want to look out the window as we're landing in, in, in uh, Tampa. People just cheering and going nuts. Can you imagine 10,000 people in one spot when we get off that airplane? Never forget it. It's... You know, it almost made 0-26 worth going through. <laughs> Not really, but it helped a little bit anyway. Johnny Carson was host of The Tonight Show and had long been making fun of the Buccaneers on national television. Oh my goodness gracious, Johnny Carson, I think the Bucks were half of his show. The Titanic and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Titanic and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> Name two disasters that were accompanied by band music. <laughs> but to give Carson credit, and heaven forbid an evening talk show host would ever want to jump on a media bandwagon, he did pay tribute to them in his own way the following evening. You know, they won their first game after losing 26, and I've been making jokes about the Buccaneers ever since then. So they sent me the ball, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, New Orleans Saints, December the 11th, 1977, the first Oh, First winner. So this is really a new product because it's hardly been used. <laughs> and then the following week, the Bucks play their final home game of the season against the St. Louis Cardinals, and they win again. Yes, and they actually score two offensive touchdowns this time, and one of them is with a forward pass. Um, Gary Huff hit Morris Owens, who we talked about uh, last time. Morris Owens was a true deep threat you know he had said i think it was a 61 yard touchdown uh early in the game now i was not there and it was not a sellout so it wasn't on television but i do remember uh the story of how the fans stormed the field and actually tore down the goalposts following that game and what's interesting is the bucks not only won two games to end the season the bucks got two different head coaches fired after the season. Hank Stram was fired by the Saints and Don Coriel was fired by the Cardinals for the sin of losing to Tampa Bay. And Don Coriel, of course, got picked up by the San Diego Chargers and went on to create one of the best passing offense of the late 70s, early 80s with Dan Fouts. Yeah, and he actually had a, a very good offense in St. Louis with Jim Hart. But once again, the Bucks defense was becoming so dominant they completely shut down Jim Hart and Terry Metcalf and Jackie Smith and all of these, these great football players from the 70s. 
Dennis, it's been fantastic having you having you on the show again. Tell people again where they can read more of your work. Uh, they can find my book anywhere uh, books are available, Amazon.com. Uh, my book on Hugh Culver House is still available through the McFarland Publishing Company. Um, and I just, I appreciate the time that you've given me here. Uh, it's always fun to chat about Buccaneer history. I can't wait until we get to some of these Lehman Bennett games, um, figuring out which of the four victories you will uh, designate as being historically significant. Dennis, you've been great. Enjoy Huey Lewis in the news. You've been great, Paul. Enjoy Adam Ant. The 1977 Bucks would still wind up with the worst record in the NFL at 2-12, but no one in Tampa really cared. They were winners at last. They would trade the first overall pick to the Houston Oilers for a haul that brought them Doug Williams and Jimmy Giles, and two years later, they'd be within one game of the Super Bowl. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Dick. I mean, I've always got fond memories. My first ever game was a home game against the Bears in November 1988, I was on the sideline and I seem to remember someone looked very much like you came to interview me on the sideline for Buck Radio. <laughs> right. And you weren't even famous then. <laughs> <laughs> Dick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, Paul, I think it's great. I admire what you're doing. I think it's really a, a labor of love, so to speak. And uh, I think that shows. And uh, God bless you, my friend. I'm, I'm just glad that all is well in your world and uh, keep up those bucks man they they're having a good time and it's a good time to be a buck fan and there we have another memorable game in buccaneer history brought back to life my thanks to my guests dennis crawford and the legendary dick Crippin. and as always thanks to al needham and the executive producer of the buckpal.com podcast tj reeves Please subscribe, rate and review this podcast wherever you get your media output from and get in touch with me if you have any questions about the history of the team. You can contact me through buckpower.com or on Facebook at Paul Powell Stewart or through Twitter. Oh, my God.